Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Spooky Pants, our special October edition of scary podcast episodes from the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. This week, we're revisiting our interview with Caitlin Dowdy, everyone's favorite mortician, about the different ways that people around the world deal with dying and the afterlife. Caitlin Dowdy is the death professional behind the internet's favorite show about the afterlife, Ask a Mortician, and founder of the Order of the Good Death, which works to overcome our culture's anxiety about dying, grief, and the afterlife. She runs her own funeral home, Undertaking LA, which offers alternatives to traditional formaldehyde-soaked burial practices. Caitlin has written a new book, from Here to Eternity, in which she travels the world in search of the good death, from Mexico and North Carolina to Japan and Bolivia, learning about the ways other groups of humans have approached the end of life. She's joining us from Los Angeles. Thanks for being here, Caitlin. Thank you for having me. So your first book was all about your relationship with death as a human, a mortician, an advocate, and how you're trying to change American views on it. So for listeners who may not have gotten a chance to ask a mortician, so to speak, what makes a good death in your view? And, and why are we so bad about thinking about death in the United States? The term the good death, even though I use it frequently, is a pretty fraught term because it leads to people saying, but what about all of the bad deaths that we have, especially right now, with black people, with trans people, um, with people who don't have access to the resources of what you might call a good death. And my counter argument to that is that pursuing a good death is still a really important exercise because my friend Chanel says it really beautifully. She says there's optional suffering and then there's non-optional suffering. And in talking about death and talking about what's required, talking about the paperwork, talking about how you feel about death, what you might want done with your dead body, talking about those things in advance can remove a lot of the optional suffering that comes 
with a death. We can't remove the non-optional suffering, whether someone died in horrible gun violence or they died airy-fairy in their bed surrounded by roses at age 90, but we can remove some of the optional suffering. So what the good death is, I think, is trying to pursue the removal of optional suffering that we're bringing on ourselves because of the silence we have in our culture. So for this book, From Here to Eternity, you cover a lot of ground. You go from Belize to Mexico, Spain and Japan. I mean, death is is everywhere. Like we all die eventually. How did you choose where to go? Which death rituals, I guess, sang to you from across the world? It was really hard. I had so many places that I wanted to go. And the reason I chose the places I did is access. I wanted to go places where, one, I knew that I would have access that no normal mortal would have. (laughs) And two, I wanted it to be places that I knew the right people to the point that if I came in to see a very intimate ritual taking place or a family open their home to me, that it wouldn't be this oafish, you know, big American white girl fumbling in without any context. They didn't know who I was because I didn't want to offend anyone or or truly hurt their ritual or experience of their own death at all. Right. And I think one place that really sums up that that really delicate dance is something you call the holy grail of corpse interaction in South Sulawesi, <laughs> Indonesia. Can you tell us about this island and their their death rituals? Well, South Sulawesi is actually quite a large island or it's quite a populous island. And then in this one mountainous region in a place called Tana Taraja, they have long done a ritual called the Manene. First of all, when somebody dies, they will mummify the dead relative and keep them in their home, sometimes for a year, two years, five years, however long it takes to fundraise for the elaborate funeral they have for the person. And during that time, the person gets food, they're dressed, they may sleep in the same bed as as the dead person. And when the time for the funeral comes, they will have an elaborate funeral with animal sacrifices, and then the person goes into a home-like gravesite where every three years they are unwrapped and they are redressed and cleaned. So not only is the mummy kept in the house, even after the mummy is sent for burial after the funeral, the family will continue to come back to the mummy every three years or so and refresh the mummy, clean the mummy, talk to the mummy, tell the mummy what's been going on. And it really is what my my friend Paul, who I traveled with, calls a soft border between the living and the dead. In America, we have a hard border, meaning when someone dies, they are absolutely dead. You can cremate them, you can bury them, their body doesn't matter. But in this part of Sulawesi, It does matter because it's a soft border. You can constantly transgress that border. And when you talk to the dead, they can still hear you and they understand what's going on. And they can, you know, they know when you're doing right by them. And it's a continued relationship with the dead body. And it is the holy grail of corpse interaction because... For an American, that may sound just about the most horrifying thing you've ever heard, the idea of keeping mom around that long. But what was so amazing for me is just how normal it seemed when I was there. Though I think your experience, at least reading about it, sounds a little not normal. I mean, you you did 
bring a pig, <laughs> to a ritual pig to be sacrificed. Yeah. It, well, when I say it was normal, I don't mean it was normal for me. <laughs> I wasn't like, oh, just another day at the old mummy farm. Um, no, not at all. But it was certainly, it was so obviously normal for them. And when the people around you are clearly so comfortable and so confident in what they're doing and the meaning behind what they're doing, you can't help but look around and go, oh, yeah, this is this is fine. We're cleaning some mummies. Sure. Great. Um, and as far as the moment when they when they brought them all out, this was interesting because they kept I mean, we had flown longer than I've ever flown on a plane in my life. It's just about as far away as you can get to travel. And it was interesting because there was always this talk of, oh, well, it'll happen on this day. Well, we're going to do something else today because the, the mummies aren't going to happen until a couple days. And the, and the time frame kept shifting a little bit. And Agus, who was our, our local guide, kept saying, oh, it's, it's Taraja time. Don't worry, it's Taraja time. And so there was, for me, it always felt like there was a chance that this wasn't going to happen at all. Or if it, if it did happen, we would be elsewhere. You know, they would have us go elsewhere and we wouldn't get to see it. But then the morning comes and you walk out just along the main road in this village and the road is lined with what they call house graves, which are just small, freestanding um, places where the mummies are kept. And here you have all of these families starting to bring out and stack their dead. And their dead are, some of them are very old in the sense that they died 20, 30, 40 years ago. And some of them are for the last three or four years. And you can watch them decide in this pile of wrapped mummified bodies, you can watch them decide which people they're going to unwrap. And they have discussions. They say, oh, okay, that was that was uncle and, and he died a while ago. I don't know that we need to unwrap him. Or someone will say, I don't even remember who that one is. <laughs> that one in the pink blacket. I'm not even sure who that one is. They can stay. And then they'll be this is dad. Of course, we're going to unwrap him. He's going to be our first person. We're going to redress him. He's going to get the full treatment, basically. So it's really, it's kind of a strange postmortem status symbol as to how long you get unwrapped and cleaned, I think. What's amazing to me about that chapter and the illustrations that went along with it, too, is that this practice is so old. It goes back so long. And yet, um, these people have managed to hold on to it, despite the fact that they're now dressing dad in like a SpongeBob SquarePants T-shirt. <laughs> yeah, and they the yeah the blankets are Disney princesses, and there is this, and and I know that the funerals themselves are taking cues from variety shows and 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 modern modern television shows. So it's certainly certainly changed over the years, and they're now the majority of them are now Christians. They used to have this animistic religion that they followed, and there was this pretty mass conversion to Christianity, but they've really managed to to syncretize the old religion and the new religion into this hybrid that still involves taking out the mummies and cleaning and redressing the mummies. It goes way beyond, like... All Saints Day or Christmas, I think. <laughs> it does. But, you know, w with all of these places that I visited, or quite a few of them, I'll say, there's this sense of the the church, whether it's Catholic or, or various Protestant denominations, saying, well, this doesn't represent us. 
It's like, well, you know, especially Catholics, you are well known for hanging out with bones, for doing things with bodies, for worshipping body parts of various perceived saints and martyrs. You know, you got a long history of of hanging out with the dead body and interacting with the dead body and even worshipping the dead body. So not sure you're one to talk, guys. Um, so another another interaction you have is in Bolivia, where speaking of, of uh, interactions with dead bodies, the relationship between the dead and the living goes beyond family members. And you have the phenomenon of the nietitas of La Paz. Can you talk a bit about these skulls and what relationship they have with the community? Yeah, it's it's an amazing thing. So it, it started with the um, one of the indigenous groups in Bolivia. And primarily the women, just statistically it's more women than men. And they they have this perception that the skulls of the dead, particular skulls, call out to them and and ask them to come to them. And whether they're in a graveyard or they're in a medical school or a dental school, these skulls come to the women in dreams and say, come pick me up. I'm ready to be a nyatita. And they get the skull and they bring them back to their home and they create an altar for the skull. And the skull isn't necessarily someone they knew in life at all. It's not like, you know, Jose died and then Jose is now Jose Nyatita. It could be a completely anonymous skull. And then in the dream, the skull will say, I'm Maria, I'm your Nyatita now. And when a skull becomes a Nyatita, it is almost a conduit between the beyond and the living. So people will come to visit this nyatita, whether it's someone in their own home they have their nyatita, or there are women who are, you know, akin to akin to witch-like figures who have a whole bunch of skulls that people come to visit. And they talk about love, they talk about finances, they talk about protecting their home. They just, it's, it's a way to come and have some sort of more direct conduit than the Catholic Church offers them with, with the beyond. And the skulls, the nyatitas, are that conduit. Right, and they almost get like a, a second lease on life in a way because these skulls eventually take on this whole new kind of existence. It's like an afterlife of their own, kind of. They really do, and it's it's hard, I think, for for the Western perception, it's difficult to think, wait, somebody dug my mom's skull up and made, you know, put it on their mantelpiece and now asks it for love advice or help in love. Um, but first of all, in the you know, in the cemeteries in Bolivia, first of all, they only have a certain amount of time in the grave. There are all these charnels with a lot of bones. So it's a much different cemetery system to begin with. It's not, this is my forever grave and I dug up your mom and stole her skull. It, it doesn't work like that. And also, I think there's the way that how much these women and sometimes men just love these skulls and bring them offerings and put them in little flowered hats. And the reason that I was there was for um, this festival of the Nyatitas that happens once a year where they bring them out to the main cemetery in town or the general cemetery in town. And it's just a celebration. It's a celebration for these Nyatitas. They're honoring them. It's their big day out. There's flowers. There's offerings. And just, I mean, you could do a lot worse postmortem than being a nyatita. Yeah, I would I don't think I would mind. <laughs> I don't either. It's like your it's like your big I'm back baby <laughs> and we're out. And I get an amazing flower crown. Oh, exactly. It'd be a great way to go. Um so I think both of those are examples of um I guess 
rituals that seem a little out there for Westerners. And one that um, that I think is a little bit closer to home is the Japanese practice of katsuage, mm-hmm. which is a, a little twist on cremation. Can you talk a bit about that and, and why you included this pretty, um, I guess, normal Japanese ritual in the book? Sure. I mean, well, and that's the deal is that when you said that, I, I was gonna, wondering what you were going to say. I was like, oh, which one seems close to home and normal? Because a lot of people, when I explain this to them, they're like, they do what? <laughs> so I, I think it's still a bridge too far for many for many people in America. But what a kotsuage is, is after the cremation takes place in Japan, and they have, you know, their funeral industry is is very high tech. They have these very nice cremation machines, especially in the larger cities. And after the cremation takes place, they pull out essentially this full skeleton. So what most people don't know about the cremation process is that what you have left is the skeleton. It's bones. They're incredibly brittle, but it's not ashes. It's bones. And we use a thing called the cremulator, which is a bone blender, to blend down these big bones into what you know as ash, like when you would scatter your grandmother. And in Japan, they don't do that. They pull out the full body and it's brought into a separate room where the family members take chopsticks and the urn is at the head of the person and they work their way up the body, grabbing the bones with chopsticks and putting them in the urn. So ending with the head so they can kind of walk upright into the beyond and then they take away that urn full of bones. And they're getting more into scattering now, so they'll they'll grind down the bones if the family wants it. But the traditional way is this chopsticks, picking up the bones into the urn ritual. And I, I think it's lovely, to be honest. I There's so many people who ask me, can I just keep the bones? I don't want you to do the whole cremulator grinding the bones thing. Can I just keep them? And normally we have to say no because California law at my funeral home requires that we have, quote, unrecognizable bone fragments that we give back to the family. So you can't be able to tell, oh, this is a little part of your femur. Oh, wow. So unless we get some sort of religious dispensation for the family, we have to do the grinding of the bones. But... What I've noticed recently, especially even among people that I would never expect, they open the urn and they see the little bits of bone that are left that don't get totally ground down, and they want to pick through and find just those bones. There's something about the bones specifically that people find so intimate and such a relic of the person that died and makes them feel really intimately close to the person who died. And I'd love to see there be more more allowance for the bones being present in in the Western world. Yeah, I think what's so interesting about Japan is that there is this real connection with the with the body and with the ritual, and it goes back thousands of years, presumably. But also Japan is really, really high tech, and you also have places like the Ruriden Columbarium, which is like mm-hmm. all neon lights and LEDs, and it's like super cutting edge. I think there's this fascinating clash between the high tech and the reverently ancient in Japan. Do you think that's a model for us going forward? What I love about Japan as an American is that it feels very aspirational to me in a way that's not way too far for anyone to ever accept it. And the Japanese used to um, 
consider the body quite corrupt and and dirty. And they really don't anymore. There's been a shift in perception and they now, they do see it as more medicalized and they still want to do these rituals around it. They still see it as the person that they, they loved and they want to be with the dead body, which is more than we can say for a lot of the American funeral industry. But then after that, they, they are a very high tech, high tech country and they bring that bring that desire into the funeral industry. You mentioned the Ruriden Columbarium, which is you walk in and there are 360 degrees of these crystal Buddhas that surround you and you use a key card. So say that your mom died and you put her ashes behind one of these Buddhas. You use the key card, you go boop, boop, boop at the entrance and all of the Buddhas glow with these beautiful colors and there'll be one Buddha that's glowing a white, say, a different beautiful color. And that's your mom's Buddha. So it's like the it's like the whole space conforms to your visit with your mother. It's not like you have to scan the Buddhas and squint and find your mom. She comes to you through this light design. You might be like, oh, crystal light up Buddhas, that's really hokey. It's not. When you're there, you're just like, ah. It, it feels beautiful. It feels like a place that you can truly... Um, worship and visit with the dead as they would in Japan. And it's just a it's a great it's a great system. And they're doing that all over Japan. So at the end of your book, you go 5000 miles from Japan back to the United States to these three American efforts to change our relationship with death um, to pyres in Colorado, open air burial mounds in North Carolina, and then your own funerary company in California. So why did you begin and end the book in the United States? Sort of the beautiful part about being in a country that has so much death denial and such a regulated funeral industry is that it goes so far that it inspires some pretty amazing people to try and change things and try and stand up against the system. And the two people that I feature in my book, who are not me, are um, one is one is a group in Crestone, which is a small town in Colorado that has the only community open air pyre in America and really the Western world, I believe. And they're such an amazing community. They do all of the death themselves from helping you from the moment the person dies. They'll come to your house. They'll prepare the body. They'll do a home funeral. They'll wait a couple days for everyone to gather. And then they do a procession at dawn to this open air pyre. And when you're there, you know, talk about, oh, it's, it's just, just this primal, beautiful, but still very contained experience. And the other, the other thing that I do is I visit this human decomposition facility, also commonly known as a body farm, in, in North Carolina, where my colleague Katrina Spade is working on uh, creating a system to compost dead bodies. She's calling it recomposition. And instead of cremating a body, you would put it in nutrient-rich materials that break the body down to soil over a period of time. And it's a way to have a much greener, much more connected to the earth type of death. And who knows which of these things is really going to take off, which is the next cremation. We have a lot of different options, um, but, but something has to shake up the sort of just embalmed burial cremation, you know, two-party system that we have going on in America right now. 
Right. And what seems so symbolic and I think really beautiful, too, about these two methods that are taking place in these small places, admittedly, is that they're they're much closer to indigenous practices that were all over the country, all over the continent, well before we got here. They certainly are, yes. And in in Colorado, the beauty of that is that, and they actually feel kind of bad because people are contacting them from all over the U.S., whether they're Hindu, whether they're Buddhist, whether they're Native American, and saying, can we please come be cremated on your pyre? Because there's nothing else like it. And they have to say, oh, I'm sorry, you know, we're required to have you own land or live in the community um, because they're just a small nonprofit. So they can't take all the corpses from all over the U.S. to do this. But a lot of people want it because they come to, and a lot of immigrant cultures also come to America, and they have their death rituals, and they're told, no, you you can't practice them. It's illegal. Why is it illegal? The real answer is the funeral home lobby <laughs> and their desire to control exactly what people can buy and uh, how they can dispose and memorialize their dead. But I think people are, to a certain extent, waking up to that and saying that that's not acceptable. If you want to learn more about death practices around the world, and we didn't even get to Mexico, check out Caitlin Dowdy's new book, From Here to Eternity. Caitlin's travels are accompanied by beautiful illustrations from Landis Blair, which you can see on our episode page. Link in the show notes. We've also got a video of Japan's Ruriden Columbarium and links to Caitlin's YouTube show, where you can learn all about things as diverse as ghost marriage and the different ways there are to decay. Plus, on a more serious note, her book is a really good starting point for what can be intimidating or scary conversations with your own family members. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. 
That's stamps.com. Code program.